But today we're going to talk about the Easter message. We're going to talk about the resurrection. Obviously, it's something very important to our Christian faith. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read verse 1 through 7. We're going to hit all seven verses here in just a minute. Uh, But before we do that, you know, we have to kind of set the stage. Uh, Jesus now had already been crucified. He had already died on that cross. He'd been wrapped in grave clothes and he was put in a borrowed tomb. And then we see in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1, it says, uh, now after after the Sabbath, it had begun to dawn toward the first of the week. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, he is risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was laying. Then the angel turns a different direction in the story. It says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Behold, I have told you. So this is the angel telling the first two onlookers of the resurrection that Jesus had literally resurrected. This dead body had been reanimated and come back to life. And in the moment of the resurrection, we see a shaking of the ground The ground was actually shaking. The earthquake happened. The stone was rolled away, as we sang about earlier. This angel came with such force and such violence that the guards who were standing in their post outside the front of the the grave were literally shaken to fear, and they were thrown on the ground as if they were dead. The angel looks at the two Marys and says, Listen, now's the time. Start to proclaim that he is is risen. Go tell the disciples the news that they're waiting for, that their Messiah is risen, has actually come to pass. This is the cornerstone for the message of Christianity. This is the cornerstone for the message of the gospel, that we serve a risen Christ. We don't serve a dead Savior who still lays in a tomb. We don't serve a God who is so powerless that when death came, he couldn't overcome it. We serve a Jesus who is risen. It is the corner piece. It is the hinge point of all of Christianity, all the promises of God and all the sayings that Jesus collected, uh, that we have collected of his sayings in, in, the, in the New Testament. They all hinge on this idea that he did die and that he was resurrected. I love preaching about the resurrection because it's the most important factor of our Christian faith. But to understand the resurrection, we have to understand a little bit about Jesus, the Jesus who was resurrected. First, we have to understand how Jesus even talked or thought of himself. We see first that Jesus thought he was perfect. When he talked about himself, he talked about himself in the perfect light that God would cast on a man one day who would call himself the Messiah, that he would be perfect amongst the Jews, that he would, that he would fulfill all of their laws, though no man was able to do so. That he would be a man who was without sin, though he was tempted like many are. Jesus then said that all authority was seated in him, that in him was all authority. Matthew 28 and 18, you don't have to turn there, but it says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, the very words of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 7 and 24 says, anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it are wise 
like a person who builds his house on solid rock. Jesus literally said there was so much authority in the spoken words that he would teach his disciples that if you would follow those words, that your life would, would squell and quench all of the turmoil and turbulence that could come, that there would be a bedrock that you would be built on. To be wise is to follow those, those teachings, those sayings, that he had such authority in his voice that he settled the rockiness that could come to this life. Next, he, he believed of himself that he talked of heaven uh, from an inside perspective. When he talked of heaven or the coming kingdom of God, he didn't talk in theory. He didn't talk guessing of what heaven would look like. He talked about a man who had actually experienced. He talked like a man who knew heaven from the inside, like we would see one of the great chefs in our culture today talk about a dish that they have so eloqu eloquently crafted we would see them talk through the ingredients list of all of the nuances of that dish in the same way Jesus referenced heaven as a place that he had been. He knew all of the inner workings of God's kingdom. And next, Jesus talked of himself as the center of the universe, that he was specifically the center of the religious universe, that all spirituality was encapsulated in this one person, that there was no way to heaven and there was no way to the Father except through him. Jesus was so sure of this fact that he coined many centric phrases like I am the door, or, I am the light, or I am the living water, I am the way, the truth, the life, uh, by me if any man enter. Jesus preached or never preached a means apart from himself. Jesus never talked about a way to God, a way to the afterlife, a way to heaven apart from himself. Jesus made eternal life contingent upon this one thing, accepting him. This is the God that we say we serve. This is the God that we say rose from the dead. And all of these dramatic sayings, all of these dramatic points of Jesus hinge on the idea that he actually rose from the dead. This claim, this exclusive claim that you can't find heaven, that there's no way to the Father except through Jesus is a very big claim for that time being. In fact, in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brother and sister, yes, even his own life, that such a person cannot be my disciple. Such a hard statement from Jesus, yet what he's simply saying is if I'm not preeminent, if I'm not first, then I am nothing. I cannot be second place because in life with Christ, if he is second place, then he is the same as last place. He has to trump everything in this life. These are the hard, fast statements of Jesus. He goes on to say that there's something so wrong in this world that unless he die physically die, that it cannot be fixed. Such an awkward thing to say, that a man would say that he would must sacrifice his own life to fix what is so broken in the world that he was living in, to fix what would be so broken in our human history that he himself needs to die. In fact, he said it like this, that unless the seed fall to the ground and die, it cannot produce a harvest. His death, he claimed, was the restoration of our lost inheritance, that what should be ours because we are children of God, that we are made in his image, that we have the imago Dei, the image of God on each of us, that what we should have that is ours, that is lost in sin, only he can bring back, that he would ransom back all that was lost, that was our inheritance. 
Next, he says something very specific. He says that he would rise again on the third day. In fact, he was talking to a group of religious elites, and he said it like this, that if you tear down this temple on the third day, I will raise it again. They couldn't understand the analogy he was making. They looked to the temple that was in the city square and said, how could he possibly destroy this temple and build it up? It took generations to build this temple. How could he possibly do that in three days? Yet he was talking about himself, that if you tear down this temple, that in three days... I will raise it again. And when he made such outstanding claims to the Jew, he was making claims of his Messiahship, that he was the one that they were worshiping for, that he was the one they were looking towards for, that he was the one that they were hoping for, and such a claim would be blasphemy. We see in the, as Jesus is, is, is being uh, brought before different courts, we see that when he was in front of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people, that he, st- that he had to answer the question, are you the Messiah? When he answered affirmatively, affirmative, affirmatively, that's not a word, when he answered affirmatively, they tore their garments to show that this man was a blasphemer. And then he found himself in the court of the Romans. Because he was a threat, he was a possible, he was a possible uprising. He was a man claiming that No, Caesar wasn't king, but that he eventually would be king. And all of these things would point to the death of Christ. And the last thing he said, not just that he would raise again on the third day, but it it was indeed a true fact that he would rise again, that he would be seated in glory as the coming and conquering Messiah. If any eight, if any one of these eight points are true, then Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. But if any one of them falls short, he can only be simply a liar or a lunatic. The God that we serve, the Jesus that we serve, is not the Jesus of our modern-day convention, who is a good teacher with some moral thoughts. He is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. He can't be in some middle ground and some gray area in our lives. We either have to accept him as the world's greatest liar and that lie was spread from generation to generation or he is simply a crazy person who spread his crazy beliefs from one generation to the next or he is what he says he was and he is Lord. The only thing that that can dispel, that can dispel any doubt about the claims that Christ made while he was here on earth, the only thing that can dispel those the doubt of those claims is that he would rise again on the third day. That if he was true to his word, any one of those statements that he is the center of the universe, any one of those statements that he was maybe just showing off his intellect or trying to garner a group around him to speak to, any one of those particular claims on itself would be nothing to dispose of. Yet if he did not raise from the dead, then all of those claims are falsehoods. So what would make it true that we could dispel any doubt that Jesus did raise again on the third day? The fact that the body isn't there. The fact that that tomb is empty. The fact that we believe the the true historical record or the true historical account of who he is. See, when we talk about the resurrection, we have to talk about some facts. There are some facts that come into light. One, that Jesus actually lived. We have enough historical evidence outside the New Testament to prove that Jesus actually lived. We have to believe that he was crucified. There's enough historical evidence to prove that men and women were actually crucified by the Romans in the same way Jesus was crucified. It doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to think that a man that was a potential uprising was crucified to squelch his followers. 
We have to believe then that he was considered dead, that when he was on that cross and he was tortured and beaten and the spear jammed through his side, when he hung his head and said, it is finished, we have to believe then he actually was considered dead. But then we have to believe the story of the first generation Christians, of those first century Christians, that it was preached, that this idea that Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his empty tomb was actually preached by those first followers of his. And we know it was to such a degree that the Jewish elites and the leadership were trying to put down the story. We see written through history this idea that they were trying to dispel this notion that there was a Christ or that he even rose from the dead. And then we look to the facts that many of those who preached the story of Jesus early on were persecuted. We'll get to that in a moment. Then we have to look to the fact that the tomb was empty. The day that we celebrate today, the, the resurrection of the Son of God. We look to the empty tomb. And we know that it's not just a tomb far off that we can't find, but it's a borrowed tomb. It's a known tomb. It's a tomb that's easily accessible. In fact, today, if you were to migrate and find your way uh, to Israel, you can find outside the city gates a tomb. Now it's surrounded by all kinds of worshipful uh, little monuments and moments, but it's a tomb that's empty. It's a tomb that if you walk in its doors, there's no body there. It's a tomb that if you walk in this small cave hollowed out in the side of a hill, there's no bone box there. Mark Jesus that this, this tomb is actually empty. It's a known tomb. It's visible. You can visit it today. But there are many people who would like to say that those arguments are nothing, and they build contrary arguments to the fact that Jesus was actually resurrected. The first is that they like to say that maybe his grave was robbed. Maybe he was first robbed by the Jewish elite. Now, that wouldn't help their narrative. If they stole the body, wouldn't that prove to his disciples that he actually did live again or at least give them reason to believe and to squelch the idea that Jesus actually rose from the dead all they would have to do is present this stolen body maybe the Romans stole it because they wanted some kind of infighting amongst the Jews yet we know that wouldn't help their narrative because if there was infighting it would be unrest and they would have to bring order to that tribe of the Jews and rather than bring unrest they'd rather just show the body look here's the dead man that you said rose from the dead maybe it was his followers but over time and through the torture that they persisted through that would have been a very big lie to shoulder even to the point of death maybe the body went to the wrong tomb Maybe we see a Jesus who was buried and his followers just found themselves at the wrong tomb. Well, the easy way to dispel the rumor then would just be to go to the right tomb, find the body. Even today, people are still digging and digging, and they have been for generations, to finally find the tomb where Jesus' body might lie to dispel this whole idea of Christianity, yet not one person has been successful in any archaeological, any archaeological dig. Maybe there was a mass hallucination that people were imagining this Christ walking around with holes in his hands and holes in his feet. Maybe it was mass hallucination, not one, not two, not three, but hundreds of people hallucinating the idea that they saw Jesus walking among them. Maybe it was resuscitation. Maybe the man was beaten to the point of almost death, crucified on a Roman cross, stuck with a spear in his side, and then when they laid him in that cool tomb, his body just resuscitated and he lived out a normal life. Not hardly. When you were crucified on a Roman cross, everyone knew that was a death sentence. You knew that once your feet were placed on that wood and your hands were, 
were nailed to that cross that you weren't coming off alive in no way and no how. So then it brings us to the, another point. Maybe it was just a lie. Maybe these people got together to perpetrate a lie that spread down through generation after generation. But maybe, just maybe, this was an honest portrayal. Not that an honest portrayal always has uh, necessarily very accurate points of view. That's why when we testify that we are witnesses to a crime, there needs to be multiple people to gather all the details because sometimes we lose sight of actual details. Maybe these folks were honest, they just were mistaken. Maybe these folks were honest in what they're saying, they just weren't, mis they just weren't factually correct. Unfortunately, the first generation of Christians gave their life to something that maybe they weren't factually correct on. Jesus, in a conventional theory, is either good and not very wise, or he's not good, but very wise. In a conventional sense that he is just some good teacher, but he didn't raise from the dead, Jesus is either good, he had good teachings, he had a lot of good things to say, but he made some claims that weren't very wise, or he's not very good. He is a liar or a crazy person, but he was so wise and so cunning that his lie even spreads down through today. See, the secular position is this, that resurrection can't happen. Therefore, it didn't happen. And anyone who claims that it did happen is either misinformed, a little bit crazy, or perpetuating a lie. But we know as Christians that our standpoint is very simple. Resurrection is impossible. It cannot happen, but it did happen. And it happened one time in one man. And that's the one we celebrate today, that Jesus himself rose from the dead, that Jesus himself, the God-man, the one who made all of these outlandish claims, the one who said he was the center of the universe, the one that claims to be Messiah, the one who literally had the weight of the world on his shoulders, that one literally rose from the dead. That's who we celebrate. That's why it's so important that we understand what resurrection is all about, that it's not just about the Easter idea. Right? Sometimes we water down the resurrection or the day of resurrection by saying happy Easter. It's a good sentiment, and in that is encapsulated the idea of resurrection, but we should be very adamant of saying he is risen. And hopefully today through social media, your family gatherings, hopefully today you can make that pronouncement that he is risen. But why do we believe in the resurrection? What facts do we have to actually believe that Jesus, this Jesus who made outlandish claims, that this Jesus who said he was the way, the truth, the life, that this Jesus that said he was the door and the only door to the Father, what can we point to to say that this Jesus was telling the truth? That resurrection is a fact and that we can believe and hold our faith strong in the ideas of the resurrection. Well, first is cataclysmic change. That everyone who comes face-to-face -face contact with the resurrected Christ, there is cataclysmic change. Peter, one of the disciples of Christ, was the most impetuous man you will ever meet. Peter was the one who, when Jesus said, I need to wash your feet, he said, God, uh, no, I, I need to wash yours. Uh, th this isn't the worthy status of, of my God to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I can't wash your feet, you're not part of my kingdom. And Peter said, then by all means, wash my feet, but wash my whole body. Peter was the same one that when Jesus was being taken into custody, pulled out his sword in order to, to defend his Lord and swung 
at those who would take him, missing their head and lopping off an ear. And Jesus told him, put your sword away. And he healed the man instantly. He was very impetuous. Yet at the revelation of the lordship of Christ, at the revelation of this risen Christ, Peter was the most stable man and one of the most stable men in the early church. He was so stable that Jesus said, upon you and of the revelation that you have that I am the Lord God Almighty, upon you and that revelation, I will build my church. John was considered himself one of the sons of thunder, always jockeying for position, trying to even get his mother to whisper in Jesus' ears, where are my boys going to sit when you come into your kingdom? And yet he was transformed into the disciple that Jesus loved, into one that had a loving and kind and intimate relationship with this Christ. Thomas was a skeptic, so much so that as they were traveling, Thomas said, Jesus, if we go to that city, they're likely going to kill us. He didn't see the Messiah, the true divinity of the person he was following. Thomas was a doubter even up till post-resurrection. He said, I need to see the nail-pierced hands. I need to see the, the, the split in his side. And Thomas was granted the opportunity to put his nails completely, or his fingers completely in those nail-pierced hands. He was given the opportunity to put his hand in that pierced side, and in that moment, he fell to the floor and said, my God and my Lord. James, Jesus' brother, denied his divinity while he walked on the earth. He didn't believe his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, yet after the resurrection, James, the brother of Jesus, became a devout Christian, and a pastor in Jerusalem for 19 years, and Paul, who never met Jesus, yet murdered those Christ followers when he met Jesus for the first time on the road to Damascus. After his resurrection, he became the greatest apologist that the world has ever known. He became the greatest theologian. We still use his words today to try to define this mystery of who Christ is and what Christianity is all about. There is cataclysmic change when you come headlong into a risen Christ. You cannot, will not stay the same. The reason I believe Jesus is risen is because everyone I know that's met him head on, something in their life has changed dramatically. Even in your life today, we could go story after story of those of you who have met Jesus, really honestly met him and watched your life change for the good. We have intrinsic inside evidence of truthful reporting. Big words there. We have this idea that in Mark's gospel, he attempts to show off the divinity of Jesus saying he is the son of God, yet he uses language, son of man. Why would you say that he's the son of man if you're trying to show off his power and divinity as the son of God? Because Mark was being true to the form, true to nature, that Jesus was all God and he was all man. And he could not put aside the fact that Jesus himself was man, even though it didn't help the story. The women that first witnessed Jesus' resurrection, that they were first told that the tomb was empty and they inspected the grave clothes and noticed that Jesus was gone. Those women weren't even allowed, weren't even allowed to testify in a court. Yet they're the first witnesses that God uses to proclaim that his son is risen that's a truthful reporting. They could have changed the narrative. They could have easily said, okay, guys, we know these first two women came to us and told us that Jesus was risen, but we've got to change the story because nobody's going to believe two women. 
Yet they allowed that story to remain generation to generation to generation. Why? Because there's a truthful evidence. There's a truthful nature to the story of Christ and his resurrection. The third thing of the reason I believe the resurrection is the price that was paid by those first disciples, those first followers of Christ who would proclaim this message. One of the first disciples of Jesus, Bartholomew, when he preached the resurrection of Jesus, was literally skinned alive while he was being whipped in Armenia. Andrew, one of Jesus' followers, was crucified on St. Andrew's cross, that X-shaped cross that we see in Christian iconography. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy to be crucified as Christ was crucified. Thomas was killed by the sword in India. Luke was hung in Greece. Mark was drugged to his death in Alexandria. All of his disciples, save one, met a martyr's death. You don't pay that great of a price for a lie. You don't pay that great of a, of a price for a farce. You don't pay that great of a price unless you know in your hearts that you've seen the empty tomb, that you've seen the resurrected Lord. We don't pay that great of a price for a man who isn't true to his claims. And the last thing there, no one dies alone for such great of a price, for a lie, for a farce, for something that isn't true. Every one of these men that I just spoke of who died a martyr's death were scattered amongst the known world. They weren't collectively grouped together as they found their demise. They were scattered in different cities, in different continents all over the known world. They were alone when they died. When Bartholomew was filleted, open, alive by that whip, he didn't have his brothers with him who generated a lie to stand in solidarity and to go through the fires of this torture together as brothers. He was solitary. He was alone, yet he stuck to the story. When Mark was drugged through the streets in Alexandria, his brothers weren't there with him being tortured to death. He stood alone claiming that Christ has risen. Listen, no one dies alone for a lie. No one dies a torturous death alone for a lie. These men believed what they saw. They believed that Jesus is risen. They paid the ultimate price. We could honestly say today that we could get together collectively and make up a lie. We could make up a large lie collectively together as a group, and maybe together we might take a bullet because we don't want to let down the person next to us. But find yourself alone and the torturer in front of you. Wouldn't you just give up and give in and say, you know what, I lied, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, please let me go. And then you'd come back to our group and say, listen, they tried to torture it out of me, but I stood strong, I stood firm, because if you've lied once, you'll lie a second time, you'll lie a third time. Yet these men believed so deep in their heart and deep in their core of what they saw, they were willing to take that punishment of a torturous death alone. With these facts in hand, I can come to no other conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is. We have three options, that he is Lord, he is liar, or he is a lunatic. He is either a crazy person who has disseminated a crazy story down through one generation after another, and men literally physically died for it. He is a liar. He is either a liar who, who lied about his story, who lied about who he was, 
and we have perpetuated and believed the lie and men and women died a martyr's death for a lie or he is the God that he says he is. We have so watered down this gospel at times that we've said, you know what, Christianity is good enough to just be a book of moral standards. The problem is the person at the centerpiece of that moral book was either a lord, a liar, or lunatic, and you have to reconcile. You cannot stay on the sidelines and say that I just believe Jesus was a good teacher of moral fiber. No, he is either who he says he was, or he was a crazy person, or he was a deceitful person, but he cannot be anything other He must be one of the three. With these facts in hands, I find no other explanation that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is the center of the universe, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is everything that he says he is. Why do I believe in healing? Because Jesus rose from the dead, and he said, he promised that my body could be made whole. And I know that the the greatest farce that he could have ever perpetrated on the human people was not to have risen from the dead, but the overwhelming and mounting evidence says that he did. So all of the other promises that lay at his hands and come from his mouth, those have to be true. The reason I believe I'm secure, that I'll find heaven as, as my home when this life is over, is because I believe he rose from the dead. The reason I know he wants great things for my life, that he's a good God who loves me, is because I understand his teachings, and by way of the resurrection, I know he cannot lie. This is the God that we serve. This is the Messiah that we cling to. This is the Holy One that we call our God, our Jehovah, our everything. This morning, maybe it's a challenging thought that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Maybe it's a challenging idea that though you think maybe he was a great teacher, said a lot of good and moral things, but you have to reconcile the fact of the resurrection. Did this miracle happen or didn't it? Do we believe in this miraculous moment that we celebrate on Easter that that grave was kicked open, that that tomb was peeled open, and the Son of God was reanimated and found life by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or do we believe it's just a fable? As true Christians, obviously, we believe it happened through this one man and this one time only. Yet, as true Christians, we also believe the truth of the Scripture that says the same power that raised Christ from the dead now quickens your mortal body. That the same power that dismisses all the myths of whether or not Jesus could be or would be raised from the dead, the same power that secures in us faith in the resurrection, that same power lives in you today. It it literally quickens your mortal body. It literally gives you life and vibrance and breath. Why do I believe in the resurrection? Because I have no reason not to. Why do I believe in the resurrection? Because nothing in history, nothing in psychology, nothing of theory can prove anything otherwise. I believe in the resurrection because of the story of the men who have gone before me. I believe in the resurrection because I've seen what it looks like for a man or a woman to meet Jesus face to face. I believe in the resurrection because of the price that was paid to preach Christ crucified and resurrected. I believe in the resurrection because it has to be a fact or he is a liar or a crazy person. And I refuse to believe that we chase after a God who's crazy or a liar. This morning we all have to ask ourselves that question. 
What do we believe about the cross? What do we believe about the resurrection? Did he die? Did he take on the sins of the world, past, present, and future? Did he deal with sin so that you and I could rush boldly to the throne of grace? Did he resurrect so that all the promises of God are true? Or do you see him as a liar or a crazy person? He's one or the other. Today is a good day to reconcile. What do you believe about this Jesus? This morning, we're going to ask that question, that hard question, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe he was Lord? Do you believe he was a liar? Or do you believe he was crazy? It's the question that should haunt you and plague your mind every day until you decide and settle in on how you see this Christ. It isn't a question that you can escape, but it is a question that has eternal significance. The Bible says that if we confess with our hearts and believe, confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, that in that moment we are saved, that we know that we will find heaven as our home when this life is over.